The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then go with me to Matthew 1 where we find this prophecy's fulfillment. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Well, Emmanuel is, the, is a title that most of us are familiar with. We read about it. We sing about it even this morning. But we rarely, I believe, give it enough thought. Yet it is so profound, I believe, that it deserves our utmost attention. And so today, we're going to simply focus on the word God found in this phrase, God with us. Because in this one word used to describe Jesus, we find this radical reality that this baby that was born in a manger was not just a good person. Oh, he was that. He was not just a moral teacher, though he was that. He was not just a prophet. No, this was and is God with us. And so the, the subject is simply this today, Jesus is God. He is God the Son. I have three desires as we consider this truth this morning. To begin with, I want us to be, I know it's early, but I want us to be intellectually stretched because I, I believe we in the church need to learn to use our minds a little bit more than we do. I, I'm all about feeling. I'm grateful that we serve a God that at times we can feel but I believe that also we need to employ what God has given us between our ears. Amen? Secondly, I want us to be immensely encouraged. Because if this is true, and I believe it is, that Jesus is God, it gives us incredible hope. And then finally, I hope that that hope moves us to extreme action. Because if it is true, we must respond with extreme action one way or the other. And so for starters today, let's employ the mind and be intellectually stretched a bit this morning. 
So in our text today, we find the, the name and the title of the baby that is to be born to Mary. And we talked a couple weeks ago uh, that name really meant something in the ancient world. I mean, people just name babies anything today. They make up words because it even just sounds cool. Amen? Like, there, there's no meaning to names, or rarely there, are there meaning to names anymore. Matthew 121, uh, the, the angel is instructing Joseph, and he says this, She, Mary, will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. That's glorious news, friends. The name Jesus specifies what he came to do, to save us from our sins, to reconcile us to the Father. That is great news. Emmanuel, on the other hand, is not a name. It is a title which specifies who the child is, not necessarily what he will do. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So here is why this claim is so incredible. The Jews had known the prophecy found in Isaiah that we just read, chapter 7, verse 14. But they did not expect this to be taken literally. Certainly, they expected a Messiah. And in this, they were awaiting a great leader through whom God would work. And through whose work, watch this, figuratively speaking, God would be present with his people. Much like David or one of the prophets. First century Jews, Keller points out, would have been the last people to believe the claim that a human being could be God. This was a radical claim. Easter religions there in the first century would have had no trouble accepting this as they were pantheists, believing that God is a force in everything, and they believe that some people are avatars, which are some type of manifestations of the God force. They would have had no trouble believing that a man could be God. Greeks and Romans were polytheists. If you've ever watched some of the Greek mythology and and things. They believed in a lot of gods who could dress up as human beings that could come down to earth at any moment. They would have had no trouble with this. But listen to me, first century Jews were strongly opposed to the idea that a human being could be God. And yet, Jesus Christ, through his birth, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, convinced, watch this, even his closest Jewish followers, one of them being Matthew, that he was not just a prophet, but God himself come to us. So here's what Matthew is saying here. This miracle of the Messiah being God with us, Emmanuel, is greater than anyone had expected. This isn't God with us figuratively. Matthew is saying, no, this really is God in flesh here with us. And so this understanding that Jesus is fully God is imperative to really grasping our faith. It is a foundational doctrine in Christianity, which begs the question, is this claim true? Well, obviously, I believe that, but I want to I give you some proof today. Is Jesus really God with us? Well, think of this to begin with. 
Those very close to Jesus testified that Jesus truly is God. Now, they really believe that. John, think of John, very close to Jesus. And in chapter 1, verse 1, he says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and watch this, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made. Now you drop down to verse 14, and it says this, the Word became flesh. Now remember, the Word is God, and the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. This is John's version of the Christmas story. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So John believed in the deity of Christ. First Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, very close to Jesus, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of, watch this, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter believed in the deity of Jesus. Now, you may say, of course they're going to say that. They were close to him. Listen, you might be able to convince a stranger that you are the Messiah, that you are God, <laughs> but you cannot, close those, uh, you cannot convince those closest to you because they know your weaknesses. They know who you really are. And Jesus' closest followers, not only did they say they believed it, they were willing to bank their lives on that truth. They were willing to die for that truth. So Jesus' closest followers believed, yes, in his deity. These claims would not hold much merit, though, if Jesus did not claim that himself. But he, in fact, does claim this about himself for instance, John 14 and verse 7 says this. Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Uh, Jesus often claimed this oneness with the Father. He was showing in not so many words that he is part of this triune Godhead. Jesus claimed, he made this outrageous claim to be able to forgive sins. And the question was rightly asked. Who can forgive sins but God himself? Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins. And that would be heresy to say that unless, watch this, Jesus is really who he claimed to be. And he showed, in fact, that that is the case. Because here's the thing, anybody can say that, right? Anybody can say that they're God. Anybody can, can, can make a claim, but Jesus' life actually lined up with the claim. For instance, he never sinned. The Bible declares, Hebrews 4, 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Jesus' life lined up with this claim. Secondly, he rose from the dead. Normal people don't do that. Come on, somebody. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and Christ has not been raised. Your, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have just perished. If in Christ, watch this, we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, but in fact, 
Christ has been raised from the dead. By the way, the Apostle Paul, who was a staunch opponent against Christ in the beginning, was so convinced that he encountered the risen Christ that he totally changed his story and says now emphatically he has been raised from the dead and again was willing to die for that claim. Jesus' life matched up with these claims. It's interesting that uh, I was listening last night to a scholar um, giving a lecture, and he was saying on the resurrection that even atheists now, uh, he said that two-thirds of the majority of atheist scholars are, are claiming that there was an empty tomb. And most of them saying, we can't explain it, but there was some type of resurrection there. That, that really these, these eyewitness accounts are legitimate that we have recorded in the Bible. Even if, even if they don't see the Bible as the inspired Word of God, they see it at least as an ancient historical text, and it matches with other historical documents, and they truly believe that this occurred. So Jesus' life matched up with his claim. Think of this. His disciples, I've mentioned it, but I want you just to consider this. His disciples were willing to die for him. Why did first-century Jews, like his disciples, who would have a very difficult time believing that any human being could be God. Why worship him? Why would they be willing to lose their lives over this claim? Friends, there is only one plausible answer. You ready for this? He is who he says he is. He is God with us. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas, that God himself became a human being to seek and save those who are lost. So that's being, that's as much as I'm going to stretch you intellectually today, but I want to move. See, knowledge in and of itself just puffs up, but we ought to be, secondly, immensely encouraged because of this understanding, because Christmas means for you and for me, friends, that we have incredible hope. Christianity, I know this is redundant, but I want you to get this, Christianity is the only religion that teaches we can do nothing to earn or buy our way into heaven. Every other religion has a founder, a leader, a prophet who claims to teach people how to get to God. But it's up to them. You do X, Y, and Z, then you can experience God or you can go to heaven or you can become one with the universe or whatever it is. Other religions say that human morality is good enough, but we know in our heart that is not true. In other words, if they say if you make the right choices, if you live a good enough life, oh, you'll make it. But you won't know until the end if the good outweighs the bad. But Christianity exclusively teaches that we are actually a depraved people, more depraved than we could ever imagine, unable to save ourselves. Matthew 5, 3, Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who know they have nothing spiritually to bring to the table, to their own salvation, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not those who have this idea of self-righteousness. No, it's those who say, God, I have nothing to bring. Oh, what a wretched man I am. As, as, Isaiah, as Isaiah said, oh, woe am I, a man of unclean lips. But there's great news. Yes, we are a depraved people. God, see, he did not send a committee to earth to figure out how to get us to God. Hallelujah. 
God did not send an angel even alone. He did send an angel, but not alone. He didn't just send an angel. No, he didn't just send a prophet. No, what did he do? He came himself. God the Son came himself in the likeness for men to do in, uh, of men to do for us what we could never possibly accomplish on our own. He didn't show us how to get to God. He didn't say, hey, come on, here's some self-help for you. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. No, Jesus said, come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, it's recorded, he said, simply repent and believe in the gospel. That's what I told the couple in my office yesterday. I didn't say, now, come on, you got to clean yourself up. And then maybe, just maybe, Christ will accept you. No, I said, listen, here's what you do. You repent and you believe the gospel. And I unpack that for them. But that's how simple it is. Our salvation is not based on what we can do. It is based on what Jesus came to do and, in fact, did accomplish. Hallelujah. See, God is holy and he is just. So our sin could not just be overlooked. It had to be dealt with. He couldn't say, oh, you know what? It's not really a big deal. No, the wages of sin is death. God is also loving. Hallelujah. Not just holy, not just just. He's a loving God. And he knew that we could never climb up to him, so he did what he knew to do. He sent down to us his only begotten son to take care of the sin problem through Christ death, his burial, his resurrection. This is the hope that we find at Christmas. And friends, it should be the essence of our Christmas joy. So as we consider the truth that Jesus is in fact God and the hope therein, we should, number three, be incredibly moved. And I'm not talking just moved emotionally. Friends, I'm talking about moved to action. You can't understand this truth and just sit in your pew and not respond. It demands a response. Because of what Jesus did and the claims that he made everywhere he went during his earthly ministry, you read through the Gospels, you'll see he evoked extreme reactions. Some people, I love this, dropped everything to follow him. Think of Simon Peter how he responded to Jesus after Christ performed this great miracle causing Simon to catch a multitude of fish. Look at Luke chapter 5 and verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me. Now watch Peter's response. This is interesting here. The same as Isaiah. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Isn't that interesting? In verse 9, then he says, For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Friends, they walked away from it all. Has said, oh, give me Jesus. This to me brings me back again to Matthew 13, 44, and the man walking through the field who comes upon the treasure and goes with great joy, sells all that he has that he might obtain the treasure. It's not that he's buying salvation. It's, oh, everything else 
pales in comparison to Jesus Christ. When the scales fall from your eyes, you tend to want to leave everything else and just follow Christ. This was an incredible response. And you think of people like Mary Magdalene. And women in general were so ostracized during this, uh, this time in the first century, this culture. And especially her because she was a demon-possessed woman. But Christ delivered her from many evil spirits. And she wanted to just follow Jesus. So there are many people who just dropped everything to follow Christ there are many who fell down and worshipped him. You think of the Magi in Mark 2, 11, and it says, Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Essential oils, Dina. Luke 7, the sinful woman at Simon the Pharisee's house fell down and worshipped him in a room full of religious people where she was uh, an outcast. She just couldn't help herself because of the mercy, the compassion, the love of God. She just began to fall down and weep at his feet. See, Jesus evokes this type of extreme response. The disciples worshipped him. Matthew 14, after Jesus walked on the water and those in the boat worshipped him, saying... Truly, you are the Son of God. See, Jesus' claim, his life, evokes always extreme reaction and extreme action itself. But on the other hand, there are many who responded the other way. Many people despised him. Many of the Pharisees wanted to get rid of him. They wanted him dead. Oh, Isaiah prophesied this as well. Isaiah 53, three centuries before, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The king who came to be God with us to pay the penalty for our sin was hated and rejected. Crowds of people. He was there to sacrifice his own life for we're crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And you may say, well, how could somebody do that? How could somebody hate him? I'll tell you who could hate Jesus. It's the same people who despise him today. Self-righteous people. Because the gospel is offensive to self-righteous people. You know why? Self-righteous people who feel like they're better than some other folks that they had the right pedigree or they were raised in the right church well I've never done this they think they're somehow better the Pharisees the religious folk of, of Jesus day despised Jesus because it was an outrageous claim to think that they would get to God the same way as the prostitute you mean, I, I need to say, listen, we're good law keepers. We, we've got this. But Jesus exposed their, the hardness of their own hearts. That's what light does. It exposes things, and they hated them. They were self-righteous. Thank you. We're fine, though. We don't need a Savior. That's how self-righteous people are today. It's, listen, I, I'll tell you why I love prison ministry. One of my favorite ministries, because I don't have to... I don't have to convince those folks that they need a Savior. 
You know the hardest people to reach? The goody two-shoes. Because they can't stand to think that they come to Christ the same way as the drug addict or the prostitute or the drunk or the abuser, the liar, the cheater, the thief. Oh, we're all sinners. And we all get to God the same way. Self-righteous people don't like that message. It's offensive to him. They've been standing on their own righteousness for so long. Coming to Christ, understanding who he is, always evokes extreme, extreme reaction. You can decide because of who Jesus claimed to be. I mean, if he is who he says he is, and I believe he is, the only logical reaction is what? Fall at his feet, worship him, and center your entire life around him. If he's not who he says he is, I think he's shown that he is. If he's not, run from him. He can't possibly be a good teacher, a moral teacher. That doesn't work because he claimed to be God himself which would negate, if that's not true, it would negate everything else. He wouldn't be a, a good teacher. There's one of two. You either run to him or you run from him. But I'll tell you what you can't do. You can't be indifferent towards him. We see this kind of aloofness in the church today where people just want to sit in their pew and kind of be churchy but not really be committed to Jesus. If, if he is who he says he is, if he claims to be, uh, if, if the Bible is true, and it is, you, this has to evoke an extreme reaction. And here's what I pray for you today. If you've never fallen down at his feet, you've never surrendered your life to him, believing, repenting of your sin, believing in the gospel, professing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, today's your day. Today's your day. Some of you have said that. You've said those words, and you thought those things, but you know that you're not sold out. And this isn't something, these aren't magic words. You've got to believe this in your heart, which means you really live it out. It means he really is Lord. If he's Lord, that means you follow him. He said in the book of Luke, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? See, we don't get to pick and choose what we follow and what we don't. In the Bible, we, he's either Lord or he's not. So I encourage you today, there's no greater life than to live for Jesus. He's not wanting to opp oppress you by giving you commands and some, some guidelines to live by. No, he knows what's best for you like a, a father or mother knows what's best for their child. He wants you to have peace. He wants you to have joy. And he, know the, he knows that the path to those things is not sin. No, it's righteousness. It's obedience. It's the only path to joy and hope and peace. So I encourage you, oh Christian, today, if you're here today and you're just kind of indifferent, you, maybe, maybe you just feel a little bit of indifference today. You've heard this so much. Oh, don't ever get tired of hearing this simple message that Jesus is God with us. This is the hope of Christmas. And I want to close just by saying, matter of fact, I'll invite you to stand. Praise team, you can come. I'm going to close with these words by John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church. He, he uttered these last words, it is said, um, on his death, deathbed. He said this, The best of all 
is God with us. Two times he said this in the final moments of his life. The best of all is God with us. And so, listen, I love several things about Christmas. I love the nostalgia. I love time with family. I love the cold weather. I love the meals and the endless cookies. Come on, somebody. I love exchanging gifts with those whom I love. I love decorations. I love this beautiful tree. I love the singing. I love Christmas songs. But the best of Christmas, and by the way, the best of all, is God with us. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.